Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. So welcome back to Ivy League Murders. This week, we are doing Oxford University's Rose Dugdale, the woman who stole Vermeer. This week on Ivy League Murders, Laura and I are taking you across the Atlantic to England and Ireland. In 1958, Rose Dugdale was one of many debutantes presented to Queen Elizabeth in a coming out ball known as Queen Charlotte's Ball. Dugdale was from English aristocracy, and she had made a deal with her parents that she would go curtsy before the Queen if they let her attend Oxford University. A few years later, Dugdale took up the cause of the IRA and the working class. She masterminded prison breakouts and bombings in the name of Irish independence and an ostentatious theft of at least one Vermeer. Whether you consider Rose a villain or a hero, she's undoubtedly an interesting character. Dugdale's story is told in Anthony Amore's new book, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. Anthony Amore is the director of security and chief investigator at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, where he continues to work on recovering the 13 pieces of art stolen in 1990. He has authored three books, Stealing Rembrandts, The Untold Stories of Notorious Art Heist, The Art of the Con, The Most Notorious Fakes, Frauds, and Forgeries in the Art World, which was a bestseller and now his latest book, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. Anthony, we are so honored to have you on Ivy League Murders, and Laura and I both loved your book. Well, thank you both for reading it. I appreciate it, and thanks for having me on. Anthony, can you tell us you have a very interesting background and a love of art, which we share as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of, you've had other things, you know, you were previously instrumental in the reorganization of the TSA post 9-11. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and... Sure. Originally from Providence, Rhode Island, I moved to Boston about 25 years ago. I was working for the what was then called the Immigration Naturalization Service, which people now know as CBP. I was working at Logan Airport. I, I spent five years there, and then I went over to FAA security in Boston, where I was a special agent doing aviation security work. Then I left in February of 2001 to do consulting with uh, my partner, who was also an FAA special agent, and 9-11 struck seven months later. We were both asked to come back. And of course, everyone remembers what the climate was back then. There was no way we were gonna say no. So we did. I spent seven months working seven days a week at Providence Airport, which was a test airport for new technology. And then once TSA began, I was brought over to Logan, worked on building screening up, so you remember after 9-11, the law required that airport screening be done by federal That's right. security personnel. So we onboarded about 1,200 federal new employees and got them trained and uniformed and deployed with new equipment. And then the next mission was, this is something you guys might remember, is that before 9-11, none of your check baggage went through any type of screening. Could have put oh, anything sure. in your check bag and put it in the belly of the aircraft. So the next big mission was getting all of our check baggage screening checked via electronic means for explosives. So that was set up. And then I went over uh, with TSA to work for the inspections. And I was the assistant director for that, which meant that I oversaw the inspections and investigations related to security procedures at Logan Airport. And then after that branch was set up, I uh, was looking for a new challenge. And one day I was just looking through the newspaper and I saw an opening for a security director at Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And I thought, 
this is something completely different. Maybe it's time for a change. And my interview was conducted there. And many of your listeners who've been there know the place is just staggeringly beautiful. So I thought to myself, I can look at this place every day while I work. And I took the job thinking I'd be there about five years. I had decided to break my career up into five-year increments. However, I've been there 15 because I've been looking for the stolen paintings. You guys do investigations, so you understand. Once you start on something like this, you can't just say goodbye to it, Something, especially something on that scale. So along the course of my investigation work into art theft, I started researching other art heists to see what happens and what becomes of the paintings and who are the types of people who do it. And uh, that led me to write the books you mentioned. And that brings us to Rose Dugdale. Yes. Have you sort of always had an interest in art or your security investigations came first and then you sort of became fascinated with art theft, obviously through the gardener? I had always liked art my whole life. I had always created art as a young man, but I don't think I ever went to an art museum. I wasn't brought up in family or a neighborhood where that sort of thing was valued. I grew up in inner city Providence, Rhode Island. It just wasn't anything on our radar screen. We were too busy playing baseball or football or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I always appreciated art, took art history as an undergrad, of course. When I went over to the Gardner Museum, I was excited about the opportunity to be around art the way I was. And I was partnered with a legendary retired Scotland Yard detective uh, sergeant by the name of Jurek Rakosinski. He's a Polish guy. His nickname was Rocky just a larger-than-life sort of figure who had just recovered two stolen Turner paintings for the Tate Gallery, multi-million dollar paintings, a huge success, books have been written about it. And he indoctrinated me into the world of art crime and art criminals, but I indoctrinated myself into the history by researching every art theft I could find through any means necessary and creating a database that I still have today and now has about 1,400 heists in it because I'm interested in data. He taught me technique for this unique sort of investigatory endeavor. The reason I speak so much of him is because he just passed away a couple of weeks ago. So he's my great mentor. Sorry to hear that. Too. Amazing guy. Thank you. He was. Uh, he went the way he would have liked to, sunbathing in his garden. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Art theft is a total fascination for me, too. And maybe from one of your books, I do a lot of reading on it as well. And it's slightly beyond the purview of our interview with you about Rose Dugdale. But art theft is an interesting, people steal art to use it as collateral, either to get out of prison or to make big drug deals or gun deals. Art, I guess, is the third largest commodity with drugs and guns, and then there's art. Is that correct? That's the estimate. Art is complex because it also includes things like antiquities that are looted and trafficked. It also includes fakes and frauds and forgeries and such. But I maintain that in almost every case, the first motive is money. People steal. I'm speaking about masterpieces now. People steal masterpieces thinking they're going to be able to monetize them. They find out really quickly, very, very quickly, that they can't. And then they become these things that people start to find a dual use for, which becomes things like you just mentioned, uh, laundering and collateral Mm -hmm. and get-out-of-jail-free card. So there are a few outliers in history in terms of motive for stealing art. And those are things that fascinate me the most because they're so rare and they're so interesting. And that's going to be the case today with our case because her motive was not money, as we'll see. Yeah, that's right. right. And just one more little aside. I could talk to you for hours. I know that's <laughs> okay, okay, Laura. No, 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 no. I'm Laura. not saying that. I, I, I agree. I <laughs> Laura's agree with giving that. me the hairy eyeball. No, I, but one thing I thought was great is that maybe I read it in one of your books that criminals like these high cartel people who have a lot of money, they actually will buy legitimate art and then claim that it's stolen art because there's a certain cachet in that world of having a stolen piece of art. So I thought that was kind of Yeah, that's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, we have Um, to prove that you're a high-level criminal. Yeah, yeah, right. It's easier to steal. I mean, because the people you're dealing with are not schooled in art, right? Art thieves, by and large, except these two outliers I just mentioned to you, 
they have that in common. The outliers understand art, but the rest of them really don't. And every big art heist is filled with stories about what the thieves walked by and didn't take and that sort of thing, because they only know the big names and because they know the big names mean big money. So that's why you hear Rembrandt is stolen most often, Picasso, nowadays Andy Warhol. You don't hear about Rothko being stolen very often because mm -hmm. common criminals don't know who the heck Rothko is. Right. But everyone knows the name Rembrandt and Picasso. Those are just, they might not be able to pick out one of their works, but they know the names. So they understand that means value. We could talk to you for hours, like I said, but let's get back to Rose Dugdale. And because we're Ivy League murders, we usually discuss the institution, which in this case, Rose went to Oxford University. So Oxford is the oldest English-speaking college in the world and was founded in 1096. So that's almost 600 years before Harvard was established. So the alumni range from almost every British prime minister Dr. Samuel Johnson, T.S. Eliot, and Hugh Grant, the actor. Let's get back to Rose. And can you tell us a little bit about Rose Dugdale's background? Sure. Uh, Rose was born into extreme wealth. To her chagrin, she would have been what people now refer to derisively as the 1%. She doesn't like that claim to fame, but it's true. She was an aristocrat. She grew up in a place called Yardy Farm, which was this enormous piece of property with an enormous house and rolling hills and horses and pets and every privilege a person could want. She also went to school at a place called Miss Ironsides, which was an exclusive girls' school in England. Her parents had an apartment in Chelsea. Just an enormously idyllic childhood. And as she grew into her later teens, her parents, of course, saw the opportunity for her to be a debutante. It was expected. And there were dozens and dozens of girls of her class, meaning her social standing, that would be making their presentation before the queen. And interestingly, it was to be the last, 1958, her year would be the last time a young woman would be presented before the queen. Queen Elizabeth II had decided this was the end. Her sister, Margaret, agreed. She was uh, spoke somewhat derisively about the girls that were put before them. <laughs> I think, didn't Princess Margaret say, because you could pay to get into the event in your book, you say that Princess Margaret says, every tart in London is here. You know? <laughs> I love right, Princess right. Margaret. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she was uh, quite a character, as people are learning through a TV show. I bet you she was much more interesting. So Rose agreed to do the debutante ball against her wishes by making a deal with her parents, which I think is really interesting. The deal was she would do it if they allowed her to go to Oxford. And in 2020, that sounds absurd. Imagine any parent having to acquiesce to their daughter going to Oxford. But in 1974, for a rich family, she was expected to marry well and be home. There was no point in her going to Oxford, but she did. So parents agreed. Her parents appear to have been very loving people throughout her life, uh, despite many, many challenges. So she was presented before the Queen in 1958, and it was quite an experience for her, one she didn't enjoy. She did not enjoy being paraded amongst men who would be suitors or possible husbands. I took great amusement at seeing that some of the mothers had lists about these men. One of the lists was um, and SIT, not safe in taxis. Yeah, I read uh, that. I thought that was very funny. The dating rituals we're seeing here aren't a lot different than the ones we see in the Gilded Age when we look back at the Astors right. and when we look back at other crimes in those and we're, we're looking at those periods in time. It's quite interesting. Yeah, they were holding on to these old traditions. They were. I always want to make clear, not because I wrote this book, what's interesting about the story has nothing to do with me writing the book. It's about the life she lived. And one of the interesting layers to the book is that it takes place at a time when these traditions are changing. It's the last debutante ball. The world is about to erupt with social upheaval in the 60s. There's controversial wars and revolution, and Rose is swept up in all of this. So that idea that the debutante ball was the last one and she was a young woman going to Oxford is really an important allegory for the larger structure of her story. That was kind of leading into another question we wanted to ask while she was in Oxford, and then she does go on to Mount Holyoke for graduate school, which is close to home for us and you as well. 
We wanted to talk about the political environment because for our listeners, which really range in age, just so people understand the political environment, what was going on at that time that she's a young person in school and what she's being affected by in the environment. Yeah. So after graduating, she does go to Mount Holyoke, which is a very, very liberal institution nowadays, but it was a, a woman's school in the early 1960s. It still is, but I mean, it was um, a little more conservative back then. Mm -hmm. And so she comes to America and she doesn't shed the signs of wealth and she doesn't show the contempt that she would later have throughout the rest of her life for Americans and America and capitalism. So when she comes to Mount Holyoke, she has her little sports car shipped over with her. And during one break, she speeds across the entire country, which I think is a really interesting indicator of the type of woman she was. It, it does take a lot for a person, even today, to jump in a car and say they're gonna drive across the United States. Oh, Imagine yeah. 20 something year old woman from England doing it in a foreign country in the 60s. That's mm -hmm. pretty remarkable. So yeah. uh, she was adventurous. Uh, there's a great photo of her with a cowboy hat, cowboy boots sitting on her little roadster. And it's, it's just an interesting glimpse, but that idealism starts to change. So she goes off and gets her PhD and then she starts to teach. And now it's getting towards the mid 60s. And it's an era in which you're starting to see sit-ins in university campuses. She becomes active with her students. Her students really liked her. She was very much engaged with them and becomes part of this uprising of student activism that was unknown before this era. And at a pivotal point in her life, when she's a bit older than most of the other students in 1968, she joins with college students and recent graduates who are invited to Cuba after the Cuban Revolution to go essentially study what Castro was doing in Cuba, also to provide him with some free labor. But they went to what was called the Cinco de Mayo camps, which was 5th of May camps, and listened to hours-long lectures from Castro. And she was there with a lot of the elite of her time. And the one person that comes to mind always for me is Christopher Hitchens was there. A lot of the people that went, frankly, weren't impressed with what they saw. But Rose really took to it, and she would later describe her time in 1968 in Cuba as a major formative experience in her lifetime. She also had a lot of admiration for the Black Panther movement in this country, did she not? She absolutely did, and her admiration for the Black Panther movement would stick with her throughout her subsequent interactions with the court system, as we'll see when she's arrested and, and tried. It seems to me that Rose could have almost been revolutionized by anyone had they accepted her. Mm -hmm. Had she not gone to Ireland, she could have become a Black Panther. She could have. I wonder if it was so much the cause as she just wanted to become a revolutionary. See, I, I disagree with this with, is our, with, our we've I, been I having this with, debate with for, for, yeah, for a I day. disagree with Laura, about, and I'll get into that. What's your take on it? She does go back to England. And she goes back to England and sets up what's called a tenants union in Tottenham, where she represents people who are working class and people who need homes or are about to be evicted from their homes. She puts squatters into empty apartments. She goes and fights for these people's rights. So she'll go to benefits offices and slam on the table and sometimes uh, threaten to tip over the table. People, civil servants were petrified when she'd come walking into the office to fight for something. So she was full of fervor for her cause. Doesn't she have a lot of trouble? She is lacking in interpersonal skills, wouldn't you say? I mean, at this point, people don't like working with her. They don't like dealing. I mean, she's not diplomatic. She's not easy to work with. She goes in, right? She slams her hands down. Nobody likes to see her coming. Uh, no one likes she's to see her on coming. the other side. But is she um, effective? She's effective. It's unclear whether she would be just as effective as if she wasn't so angry, but it was, I get the sense she was really caught up in the moment. I get the sense, you know, she studied Marxism, but she never described herself as a Marxist, but that's probably closest to what she was. She was in some sense looking for a cause, right? But she always knew it was gonna be fighting for people who were less advantaged than she was, which was almost anybody. And she was very eager to shed, and she remains very eager to shed her upbringing and the privilege that she experienced. She's very much ashamed of what her family had and how she grew up. Even in her 70s, I saw an interview with her where 
someone mentioned her upbringing to be in sort of like Downton Abbey, and she was very much like, well, let's slow down here. But the fact yeah. of the matter is, that is how she grew up. So I think she was eager to shed that and looking mm -hmm. for the right cause. And it sort of found her this confluence of events when she meets a union leader in Tottenham at a rally named Walter Heaton. And Walter Heaton still describes himself at the age of 94 as a revolutionary, fought in a war that in which he saw some atrocities and it affected him. He came back and decided he was going to be a leader and essentially a rabble rouser against the man. And he was leading rallies and things that turned into riots outside of jails and prisons and for labor unions and worked at the tenements union with Rose. And these two became utterly inseparable. Even though he was married. Right. And that's the really interesting part because yes. it's another thing about the times. I mean, it's just impossible to believe even 10 years earlier that this could have happened. But she took up with Wally. She had all of this money and people sometimes took advantage of her and she spent it all. And Wally, who perceived himself to be a real man of the people, enjoyed her money. So he took to driving a big Mercedes. He was wearing the, the best suits, the most stylish suits of the era. She a real revolutionary. Spent, right, right. She <laughs> gladly spent it on him, spent nothing on herself, but she relished the idea of dressing like a working class person. At the same time, though, as you point out, she was carrying on in a romantic affair with Wally, not only with the full knowledge of Wally's wife, but right in front of her in their home. So they would go to the house, they would be up all night talking and drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and trying to speak Gaelic in a way that Walter's wife wouldn't recognize. And Walter's wife even walked in on them um, in bed and it was like nothing happened. Rose had no compunction about it. So she's an interesting figure too, as a feminist figure, yet you know the free love part of it from that era but her disregard for Walter's wife makes you wonder about her respect for another woman. So it's complex, like anybody, but they carried it on and uh, didn't cease. And what was Heaton's relationship to the fight for Irish independence? My read of their history is that Irish independence was something that was really gaining steam on the campuses. And Walter was always looking for a new cause, and this one fit perfectly. And it was said that through their activism, they met Irish revolutionaries and were even helping get guns sent over to Ireland for the cause. So you have to picture how bold these two are, though. So that tenants union in Tottenham, you know, the big banner above the door, I mean, a very large, instead of having a big sign that their office was on sort of a peninsula, like a fork in the road. On three sides of the office front were the Irish tricolors in Great Britain. You know, yep. that's that's a incredibly It's making bold a statement. statement at the time, definitely. Major know. league. Even yeah. today would be somewhat of a statement. I mean, right. in, in the early 1970s, that was a major statement. But soon all of her generosity started to cause them some concern about having money. They weren't able to keep up their lifestyle of going out and drinking at night and providing for the poor. And Rose even gave Wally and his wife, I think it was 20,000 pounds, which is really a remarkable amount of money. Maybe, maybe that helped to allay her guilt, I'm not sure. So all the money was gone and they had to find a way to come up with some. So she turned to her most familiar source, her family. Can you sort of describe what was going on in Belfast and Northern Ireland and the tensions that were happening between the British and the Irish at this time? Sure. Well, what's really interesting is that what happens in the book from this point on only take place in less than two years. But a lot of things happen in this two-year period. And one of them is that there's growing violence and confrontation in Northern Ireland. So there are protest in which people, Irish Republicans are beaten by British forces and police in Northern Ireland. There's the Bloody Sunday episode where people are killed by military in Northern Ireland. Civilians are murdered. So the people in Northern Ireland are becoming 
stronger. The IRA has a rebirth in the IRA, for lack of a better term. This is the rise of Jerry Adams. There's a difference between the IRA in this time and the one from the 20s that were fighting the uh, British rule. These younger people becoming much more active in the fight for Irish independence, for unification of all the counties to end partition. And this inspires a lot of students in Great Britain too, but not to the extent that they're protesting against Vietnam and other problems in the West. But Rose and Wally catch on to this and they hear about what's happening to the um, Catholics in Northern Ireland, but it's never a Catholic thing, it's a Republican thing. So it's not about the religious aspect of Catholics and Protestants, it's about what they see as Republicanism and freedom and revolution, and this really stirs them up. So as I mentioned, they were sending guns over to the IRA. There's belief that they went over at least once to meet with some of the IRA members. They think there's conjecture that Rose met Martin McGuinness when she went over, possibly ran into Dolores Price. But what happens in Northern Ireland that is so essential to this story, and that's why I titled the chapter The Intersection, is that in 1973, the IRA decides that they've done enough bombings in Northern Ireland against the British. It's time to bring the bombings to Britain because while people read about the bombings in Northern Ireland, they're not experiencing them. So these two young women, sisters, who are amongst the first women ever in the IRA, Dolores and her younger sister, Marion Price, join this cell and they volunteer to lead a bombing attack in Great Britain, one that Jerry Adams allegedly told them could be a hanging offense. So they go with a bunch of men and they lead this car bombing in which four car bombs are set off in front of government associated buildings. So there's an army office, New Scotland Yard, another government office, and then the Old Bailey, which is the seat of justice in Great Britain, the most famous one. So the bombings don't kill anybody, but they maim hundreds of people. It's Shocking. It's the first bombing in Britain since the war. And the Price sisters are behind it. And they're caught immediately because what's referred to as a grass, an informant, had ratted them out. Police were waiting for them at the airport. So after the bombing, they went right to the airport to go home. And the police were waiting for them and arrested them. And it was a major story that this was an IRA bombing in Britain. At the time, they believed one person had been killed, but later it was proven to be a heart attack. But imagine the uh, marathon bombing, except nobody died. But think about the incredible impact it had on the city, incredible impact it had on people's lives, people who lost legs and limbs and hearing and such. That happened there. So this is all happening within a few months. The Price sisters are tried, convicted, and they're sent to prison in Great Britain. And they immediately demand to be moved to Northern Ireland to serve as prisoners of war. Prisoners of war at the time would have different rights. They would have more visitation. They could mingle with others in the jail more easily. And they could wear civilian clothes instead of prison uniforms. And the Price sisters were adamant that what they had done was war, not terrorism. And that's one of the layers of the book I enjoy looking at these people, it's that age-old question about terrorists versus revolutionary or freedom fighter. So the Price sisters, to try to force Britain's hand into moving them to Northern Ireland, immediately began a hunger strike, which gets headlines around the world. And for good reason. I mean, these are two young women. And frankly, especially for the time, they were, they were very beautiful young women, you know, and that's the sort of thing that gets great media. Dolores was especially glamorous. She later in life went on to marry an actor, Stephen Ray, who was in The Crying Game. And then once British government doesn't know what to do with these two, they can't let them die of a hunger strike. They can't move them. They can't give in to their demands. In the book, there's a pretty hideous description of them being force fed by prison guards as well. From a layman's perspective, you hear somebody's being force fed you know, you hear it, you don't understand how gruesome it is. I had no idea how gruesome right. that was until I read Horrific. that. I, I always imagined it being like, a yeah, done through your stomach or something. I never right. knew it was done that way in such a grisly manner. 
Yeah, just it's really making these disgusting concoctions and shoving a, a tube while they restrain them down their throats and would cut their esophagus and such and pour this stuff into their stomach. They would regurgitate a bunch of it out. Right. And, and they said to... it was worse than the hunger strike. I mean, this was the worst part of it. It went on for, forgive me if I get this wrong, I think it was 160 days of this, which is torture. Terrible. It's, yeah, it's gruesome, and it's described in gruesome detail in the book, but it's important that people understand what these young women were going through, not because, from the British government point of view, you couldn't let them die of a hunger strike, and you can't just give in to, you know, imagine that happening with Cernayev here in Boston, the marathon bomber, and him going on a hunger strike. Right. I think most people would say, let him, but the government can't let him die. They, he's in their custody. They can't just say, well, we'll move him wherever he wants to go. So they well, force then, and, and you risk somebody becoming a martyr too. Exactly, I mean, and, exactly yeah, right. Yeah. You hit it exactly right. These are the complexities that the British had to deal with. So imagine this is a weekly, if not daily, headline around the world about their condition. Do you think that like Bloody Sunday and the Price Sisters were? I actually wrote those down as being, you know, to ask you about being two huge influences. These were really big events for Rose. Would you say? Without question, you pick the right two. Yeah. Uh, if you combine the Cinco de Mayo camps, Bloody Sunday, and then the Price Sisters, I think Rose would agree those are the three seminal events. And it comes back to that central question of whether Rose Dugdale would have just gone to any cause. <laughs> and, and my personal theory- You're going to have to settle this debate for us. We, fight, we fight all we the time. We fight all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. one of our things on our podcast. Okay, is... you know what? I'm talking. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So I think Rose was attracted to the working class struggles and the IRA as a pushback against her own family, her own shame about being an aristocrat. And I think you had begun, and I'm sorry to cut you off, you had begun to describe that after she was cut off from her parents and her money started to run out, what does she do, Anthony? Can I say what I think? <laughs> I think that um, Sarah and I debate on our podcast, and I think Rose could have been radicalized by anyone. I think if the Black Panthers had accepted her completely or if the Symbionese army, I think she would have embraced their cause just as much as she embraced the Price Sisters. I don't think that it was that cause she was so drawn to. I think it was just she needed a cause. Sarah thinks it was that cause. I don't think either you'd be satisfied with my answer because there's truly components of both in there. I think that Rose was without question revolting against her family. I mean, she said it in court. I love you, daddy, but I despise everything you stand for. I think if there was no Irish independence cause going on, she would have found some other leftist cause. But I would say definitely would not have been the Symbionese Liberation Army because that was really just a front for stealing money. But I think you're right about it could have been something else. It could have been the she totally admired the Black Panthers. That's why she was at rallies for them. She was. She and Wally were at rallies for their names slipping my mic. They're really not part of the book, but I have a picture in the book of Rose and Wally with their fist raised, and they're out at a rally for these two prisoners in California who were beaten up by the guards. Any sort of leftist, anti-establishment cause would have caught her sympathy, and it did. She attended rallies for all of them, but Irish Republicanism was the one that was probably closest for her. I'm thinking, you know, in Great Britain, there were huge rallies against the Vietnam War. I love the fact that there was that one where Mick Jagger had attended. She is, she never would have been her parents' daughter. And I'm always interested in the fact that, you know, from a criminology point of view and from a socioeconomic point of view, the idea of equality, one of the things that, that always sticks with me is how Dr. Thomas Sowell said, you know, about equality of outcomes that we should never expect those because even children raised under the same roof come out with vastly different outcomes. And that's true of her and her family. You never hear about her brother and her sister ever. They went on to live normal lives. There's something about Rose that nobody can put their finger on. It wasn't some sort of mental illness uh, related to her. It wasn't drug use. So that's a really interesting thing. So she goes in back to Yardy Farm when she runs out of money and robs the place because she went to what she knew where she could get money, her family's home. 
and she knows where there are valuables. And there are paintings by artists I've never heard of, but she would know. Thieves that were with her wouldn't have a clue. And interestingly, uh, you might remember she, one of the clues that it was her was that she left behind this beautiful antique she had bought for her mother and her room was never touched and such. She didn't know where to, to get money other than going there. Revolts against her family in that way again, gets arrested, goes to court. And the newspapers try to understand why she did what she did, because it was a big story. That theft was in U.S. news, right? A woman stealing paintings, doing a break-in, an aristocrat, a PhD from Oxford and such. They always referred to her as Dr. Bridget Rose Dugdale in the newspapers. And every time, one of the things that really interests me about contemporary news stories is reading them in their moment and seeing people say she was taken by not by any of these causes, but by a man. So people just assume she fell under the sway of a man. And the fact of the matter is that the men fell under the sway of Rose Dugdale. And if you don't mind, I just want to grab the book for a sec, because one of the pivotal points, and especially from a crime perspective for, for your podcast, is this great scene where, first of all, when she's in court for the theft from her family's estate, she takes on the role of a Black Panther who had originated this idea of using the bully pulpit of a courtroom to get their message out. And she did that, right? So she gave her big speech and Wally gives his big speech. And when he's sentenced to six years, he says, in the, with the type of hyperbole that was fit for the times, he said, not since Christ has there been a bigger travesty of justice, right? So here's a guy that did, you know, breaking and entering, comparing himself to Christ. Now, <laughs> when it's when it's time for Rose's sentencing, the judge tells Rose he believed she had been under the influence of Wally and that he had been the mastermind of the crime, right? Couldn't be a woman, had to be a man. She couldn't have had this sort of drive and determination. She had to be under the influence, a woozy woman, you know, it's this old mentality. Mm -hmm. And he says, and though he says you are fully responsible for your, your actions, he uh, displays legendary poor character evaluation. And he hands Rose a two year suspended sentence, claiming she was quote, unlikely to offend again. I love this. I think the risk that you will ever again commit burglary or any dishonesty is extremely remote. That's his view of the woman. It's just so much about that Yardie Farm theft is so illustrative of Rose Dugdale. So there's a picture I have of Walter and Rose coming out of the police station after they're arrested. And Walter, who's been arrested before and served time before, looks sullen, right? It's not a good time for him. Rose looks so happy walking out. And then after that court scene, when Wally is carted off to jail, prison. And she's allowed to go free and says, this is a uh, pure class justice. There's photos of her leaving the courthouse. And that's what you see in the front of my book where she's given the peace sign and then she's smiling and other ones raising her fist. She's reveling in this. You know, she's now become the anti-establishment person. Now she has her bona fides. She's become a criminal. She's, but she's a convicted she, felon. But, but she's pissed, though, that she doesn't get time yeah. for the Yardie that, theft. I think funny. that's... That's a foreshadowing, though, of what happens when she's arrested for the Rossboro. Because if you skip ahead to Rossboro, which happens, you know, less than a year later or so, think about what Rose does. She's in this courtroom being told by a judge that you were the under, under an influence of a man. He goes to jail and she... For a few times, she goes out and protests with signs and such, tells him she'll always be there for him, visits him, and then without warning, gone. She just leaves him and goes to Ireland. And when you look at the timeline and track it back, she immediately takes up with Eddie Gallagher. Yeah, so let's cut to Eddie Gallagher. So she meets Eddie Gallagher, and he's right. kind of the real deal. So he's a real Irishman. So Walter's gone. Yeah, forget Walter. He's, you he's know, now she's got... Too. Yeah. Walter is heartbroken that she has left him. He doesn't even know, you know because he's under her sway. Yeah. I do too. And you can tell he still loves her to this day. So she goes to Ireland. And as you can tell later, she hooks right up with Eddie Gallagher, who hasn't been involved with the IRA for very long. He's younger, much younger than she is. And he's under her sway. Now, Eddie was a Republican and with the IRA, but he is so, he made such rash decisions. He was such a, um, 
a loose cannon that he was sort of in his own active service unit. It was almost as if, all right, you're fighting for our cause, but you're just too much. Go do your thing. He was taking action without any type of leadership structure where things could be approved because, yes, the IRA was violent, but they they had tactics and they had strategy going right up to Jerry Adams. They Even even the most heinous things were done with some strategy. But Eddie so he was a loose cannon. He, he was a loose cannon. There was no strategy to what Eddie would do, mm-hmm. right? Perfect match for Rose Dugdale, who also didn't use strategy. And you see it right away. They She's only there for a few months before they hijacked the helicopter. They I, My neighbor has a milk churn on their front stoop. And every day I look at that milk churn. And she, she and Eddie and a couple of other guys hand-packed explosives into milk churns, hijacked the helicopter, and attempted to drop these bombs on a uh, RUC barracks. This is insane. When I read this, I was telling my husband, like, if this was fiction, I would think, this is so far-fetched. What writer thinks I'm going to believe this? Right. Right. The helicopter and, like, a prison? Like, I've told that story so many times. RUC stood for... Royal Ulster Constabulary. Right. So it was basically like a Protestant police station that they were... Basically British police in Northern Ireland in yeah. a town called Straban, which was the subject of the most bombing during the Troubles at the time. When they fly over to drop these bombs on the police barracks, they miss. First of all, two of the bombs were too heavy for the helicopter. One or two dropped harmlessly into the water. Another fell off into the rocks and didn't explode. When the media interviews the police leadership, they say, we watched with amusement. It was kind of funny, portraying them as like hapless criminals, right? But the fact of the matter is, there was nothing funny about this. If they had done this correctly, these bombs would have killed everybody in that police barracks, everybody in the area. This would have been a colossal loss. This would have been like a mini Murrah building in Oklahoma City. Just think about how many people would have lost their lives if these bombings had worked. This is where I get conflicted about Rose is because part of me is like, oh, Rose is a badass and Rose did all these kind of great things or not maybe great, but, you know, things I kind of respect or things that I think are, I may not agree with her ideology. I don't agree with her ideology, but I, I kind of respect her in some ways and what she did and how ahead of her time she was and admire her. But then again, I, when I look at that, then that changes. How would I feel about her if the bomb had landed? You know, She's an anti-hero. Right. She's, you know, um... it's very complicated because she can take on this kind of heroic form, but it's like, what if that bomb had landed? Would she be like a Timothy McVeigh? There was a bus that was transporting not only policemen in in England, right? With their families and everything. And that got bombed. Kids died. Kids died. That was the IRA, right? Yep. That was the IRA. It's no joke what happened in Belfast. I mean, lots of kids died, right? I mean, the IRA. I mean, it's... It's one of the things about... This is a weird way to explain it to you, but right now we're speaking to a lot of different groups who want to dramatize the book for television or, or what have you. And one of my major requirements is that this not turn into slapstick. I don't want this thing that Rose did in Straban portrayed as like funny in any way or goofy or Keystone Cops-ish because mm-hmm. I very much believe that the guys in that police barracks, that police station, there are sons and fathers and daughters and sisters and brothers in there. And I agree with you that, you know, people always ask me after they read the book, you really like Rose, don't you? Like I, I admire her drive and her commitment to a cause, undeniably admire that. But I loathe the things that she intended to do. And you refer to them as great. And I think great is a good word in terms of big. So like mm-hmm. she, I hate the idea that she was going to bomb a police station. Right. Right. It sounds, you know, that was 1974 and it's blah, blah, blah. But think of it being Cambridge police headquarters and someone dropping four major right, bombs right. on them. Right. Sure. Uh, it's not a good thing. That's why I want I want it to be portrayed with gravitas. And though the police talk about it amusingly, they're not amused, and nor should they be. And they put out a wanted poster for her shortly after, and they take all kinds of personal shots at her. They put a very unattractive photo of her. 
They describe her as mannish in appearance, sallow eyes, dirty clothes, this and that. They're upset, and they should be. I mean, I just want to make sure that, you know, the readers and your listeners understand. Though unsuccessful, this was a major attack. It's the first aerial terrorist attack or attack of its kind in history. And the first time since the Blitz that British possessions have been bombed from the air. Major, major thing. And most people don't even remember it. The IRA never really accepted her, correct? Like they never really accepted her, even though she fought so hard to be accepted by them and to make these huge public statements, they never accepted her. It's part of the great arc of this story. In my mind, Rose Dugdale, if she could have been anyone else in the world, would have been Dolores Price, the woman who came from nothing, who was fighting for her own cause, a woman Mm -hmm. from Northern Ireland, and took direct action, right? Rose was the opposite of that, but she was still trying to do the direct action. Rose's things that she did with Eddie were so ill-conceived and without permission that the IRA worked hard to distance themselves because sometimes they would hurt things they were doing behind the scenes for maybe a ceasefire in a certain area or some sorts of behind the scenes talks because they were doing it as free agents. So the IRA worked hard to distance themselves. And then you come to this important point where first the the Vermeer is stolen from the Kenwood house in Great Britain. And then six weeks later, Rose and Eddie and two others go and rob the Rossborough house of Vermeer and 18 other paintings. Can you describe, bring our listeners into those thefts? Because those are really yeah. So, so, so let's let's so, so let's get to Eddie. So she's 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 hooked up with Eddie because we're we're going off on a tangent. So she's hooked up with Eddie. They do the, the bombing and the helicopter again. This is just happening. There's no breaks. Right. This is crazy. Okay, they do yeah. the bombing in the helicopter and they, mm-hmm. and they get right. away with this. Yeah. The police are chasing after him. There's wanted posters. They're hiding out in homes. February of 1974, somebody breaks into the Kenwood house in Great Britain, and they break a window. They steal just a Vermeer, the guitar player, beautiful, like all of Vermeer's works, beautiful work. And they make off with the painting, and no one knows where it's gone. And then letters start coming into the police and the newspaper saying, eventually saying, it'll be returned if the Price sisters are returned to Northern Ireland. And then six weeks later, Rose Dugdale knocks on the servant's door in the evening at the Rossborough house, the biggest house in Ireland, the longest house in Ireland. And the servant's door that one of the employee's sons opens it, he's 14. She speaks in broken French saying her car's broken down. He can see the car. They go in and two men flood in with her with machine guns and gather up all the employees. They're gentle with the employees, but then they go to the owners. Owners are diamond ears. Sir Alfred Veidt and his wife, Clementine Veidt. And they are just out of a movie. They're sitting in their room, um, a big parlor, listening to the phonograph and in bursts this group of thugs. And they strike Sir Alfred in the head with a gun and injure him. And he's bleeding, he's on the floor and they hog tie him. They're yelling capitalist pig the whole time, which mirrors what's in the ransom letters for the first Vermeer. They take Lady Bait and they throw her in the dirt cellar on the floor, call her a capitalist pig. Then they go upstairs and they're together. And then the woman who used the ruse to get in the door, who was Rose, starts telling the thugs what to steal. And I think it's a really incredible scene in crime history to have a woman directing the thieves. And she's pointing out what paintings to take. There's a lot of paintings there, but she took the most valuable because she would know. 99.9% of your art thieves would have no idea. I mentioned in the New York Post the other day, some thieves might have known Vermeer and Rubens. None of them would have known Vandeveld. She did. So they take 19 paintings and make off with them. And it is just this interesting, again, intersection that she's taken these paintings with the goal of moving the Price sisters to Northern Ireland, using them as political ransom. And the Price sisters tell the media we don't want you to do this. Please give them back. They shun the advances, quote unquote, that Rose is making to the IRA. She threatens to destroy them as well, too, right? Exactly, exactly right. And Dolores does not want this. First of all, Dolores is an art lover and she studied art. But moreover, she is a true believer and a true revolutionary. And she wants to be sent back to Northern Ireland on the principle 
not on the idea that someone ransomed some priceless art treasure to mm. force someone's hand. She wants to go on her own accord. Her hunger strike is a political act. It's not a property crime. You know, and it's perpetrated only against herself, not against some museum and some piece of art. So it's this weird juxtaposition of Rose almost trying too hard for the true revolutionary. But you had mentioned about the IRA not accepting her. And this is where I think the story, when you come to the end, and there's stuff in between, of course, but you have Dolores Price, who's working under Jerry Adams, and you have Rose, who is being sort of shunned by the IRA as hard as she tries. But at the end of their lives, the exact reverse is what you find. Today, Rose is in the good graces of Jerry Adams, and Dolores died hating Jerry Adams and mm. being disowned by the IRA. So Rose is the accepted one now, and Dolores died disillusioned, saying none of what she did was, was worth what the IRA settled for with the Good Friday Accords. So they do a full switch. And you can see pictures of Rose today, or recent ones, of her with the big smile and in her wheelchair with Jerry Adams eating ice cream by her side. And Dolores did a um, documentary, I think, and it was released after her death with um, a lot of confessions, correct? I mean, yes, and it affected my book. So yeah. Rose, um, when Dolores, she was free from prison, she was struggling with alcohol and um, pills, but living a normal life. She had PTSD from everything she had been through. She agreed to a televised interview that would be she would say everything, but it could never be revealed until after her death. And then she died unexpectedly at a young age in her early sixties mm -hmm. and everything was revealed. And it was stuff about her claiming that Jerry Adams had ordered the death of a woman named Jean McConville, who was taken from her 11 children and, and killed big story at the time. And, uh, so when I wanted to speak to Rose, she, I'm comfortable saying she was, there was great interest uh, speaking to her through a, a trusted intermediary of hers. And then at the last second was told she couldn't get permission because of certain things that have happened recently with confessions. So hmm. that even affected how Rose's life story is being told because she's not cooperated. So this whole story just keeps revolving around these women right up until the end. And we didn't mention that Rose had a son, Rory. And it's interesting because that's what I was talking about earlier about the timeline. If you look at when Rory was born, he's born in December of 74. He had only, she had just only gone to Ireland earlier in the year. She had just weeks after Wally went to prison. So by March, she had already conceived a child with Eddie. You know, Wally was barely, you know, she, he could probably still remember her scent when she had already moved on. And again, people assumed that she had fallen under the spell of this wild, wild man that people called Mad Eddie Gallagher, when in fact... But you really make the point in the book that she was the ringleader. She was the mastermind of, mm -hmm. you know, however you feel about her actions, that she was not some hypnotized follower. She was very much the ringmaster of all of She them. wasn't Patty Hearst. No, she was not. People tried to draw parallels between her and Patty Hearst. She was the opposite of Patty Hearst. She didn't fall in love with her captor. The cause was her own. And the men that she was with fell in love with her. She was the leader. And no one in 1974 was able to make that claim. And it's not until now when you can look at these stories and say, wait a minute, look what these men were saying. Look at how these men fell under her spell. Look at what they did. I mean, she's in jail and Eddie Gallagher goes and kidnaps the richest, most famous industrialist in the area, Titi Harema, and holds him hostage for 36 days to get Rose out of jail because he can't just leave her there. Tell me whose spell was under whose, you know? So, um, and then he even marries her in prison. But, but considering that, and you detail in the book that there was an investigation to try to recover both pieces from the Rustboro house, as well as the Kenwood Vermeer. So eventually she does get captured, but it's almost, almost like she passively gives herself up. Can you describe kind of the... I love what you're saying, because it, it's almost like I set you up with this. You got it. 
but because you mentioned earlier that she was disappointed she didn't go to jail, right? After the Yardy farm. Now she goes to the staff, they go to a farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere, thinking it was so discreet that no one would ever find them there when she misunderstands Irish culture, doesn't realize that people would notice an outsider immediately. But think about how she's arrested. She's arrested alone with the paintings. The men who did this with her are not there, right? And she's resigned to the fact, and she never gives them up. So she goes off to jail. And it's almost like this is destiny for her. It's almost like she wants to, right? She didn't flee with the paintings. She drives back to the house. She had a sense that maybe they were onto her. And she goes back. And at first, she won't say what her name is, this and that. But she goes through the routine. That's what the IRA were trained to do. She knew probably from Eddie that you don't give your name and you say nothing and such. She's the only one that goes off to jail this time. And the men are free. She makes has no bones about it. And there was no way she was going to give them up to get leniency for herself. And in jail, she does her own hunger strike. She does protest for a squash court. It's kind of like hunger strike light. You have yes, to, you know, you know what I mean? She has, no, she, has tea, you know, like, she has tea and water and. Yeah, but it's yeah. Like, for like two weeks. You know what I mean? Like some, some people fast for longer than that. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. It's like a cleanse. <laughs> a cleanse. A prison cleanse. It was a prison cleanse. But yeah. I almost think she wanted to get caught because when you think about it, Sarah and I were talking about this earlier. I mean, you know, stealing great pieces of art wasn't like typical IRA behavior. You know, it's like they were going to probably know it was her. I mean, it, it was indicative of something she had already done. I mean, it was not something that was something like the IRA. These these guys were out stealing fine pieces of, of artwork. I mean, it was right. so, it, so it, unusual it, that, you know, the now the IRA is getting into fine art. It was just odd. Right. That's true. And I spoke to IRA members, former IRA members, and they said the same thing. Art was, that's not something they did. And right. um, that's relevant to the Godner thing where people keep bringing up the IRA being involved, which is just such ridiculous nonsense based on nothing. She had to think she was going to be caught. They were after her already. She was on the run. Now she's got, you know, I don't know, what, maybe the equivalent of $100 million of paintings in the, in the trunk of her car. The men take off because they had a sense the police were onto them. Sometimes you see in the mafia, they'll talk about a guy going off to jail and like he er earning his stripes. Right. Uh, crime college, that sort of thing. She's going to college for a revolutionary. You got to mm -hmm. serve some time. I'm not saying she's glad she went, but I don't think she was sad she went either. It gives her more validity and kind of oh, totally. her creds, like her street creds. Oh, absolutely. She's earning her stripes. It's cachet for a revolutionary. Serve time in prison. Like I said, people, there were plenty of people who were doubtful of her. Um, but if you look at her now, she's legendary. You know, she's fully accepted. The Irish love her. And it seems like she loved the cause more than anything, even family. And I kind of wondered what happened to her son, because I would assume he was secondary even to the cause. I mean, just what I know, I mean, I have no way of knowing that except for my looking at her previous behavior. And I was just wanted to ask you if, if he spoke to you, if you were able to find out anything about him. She, for the listener, she had him in prison. And then he was raised by godparents, correct? Raised by IRA, by Republican right. godparents. And then when Rose got out, Rose said herself she was not the maternal sort. Right. She later sent him off to live with his father, who has a horse farm. He, I couldn't get in touch with him. I have spoken to Rory. Mm -hmm. Absolutely wonderful guy. Just a total pleasure to talk to. Great guy. It's not just the cause, it's the way of life for her. She was just... If while she was in prison, there was the, the peace accord, when she got out, it would have been something else that she would have been fighting for. She was never going to say, okay, I'm retired now, because she went on to fight drugs in the area with the, with the help of IRA. Then she was became uh, in charge of education with Sinn Féin. Um, she was an activist. Later in life, for a very brief time, she started using YouTube. She was going to put interviews, speaking to people, speaking to a Black Panther member on YouTube. Not very good, not very interesting stuff, but um, she was always active. There's always going to be something for her throughout her life, but it was never going to be family. You know, she just drifted away from Eddie. She's like, you can't very well have a marriage with one of us in jail. And 
both of us in jail. And doesn't seem to have any regrets about any of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I saw an interview with her and she didn't, and she talked about her family and it, yeah, she just seemed just, they didn't fit with my life. Very matter of fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and I just wanted to ask you about the guitar player, because like you said, it, no one's ever been arrested for that crime. And th this is the, the, Vermeer the Vermeer that was stolen at the Kenwood. And had mm -hmm. she taken that as well, that would make her one of the top art thieves, of, would you say? She that? already is. She already is? Whether she did or not, she already is. I mean, the Rushborough House theft was the biggest art heist of its time. Wow. Um, uh, think of it like as the Gardner theft of its time. And she had done two art thefts, which makes her remarkably unusual. The only woman, not only did she do that, she did two. My belief, and I'll never be able to prove it convincingly, because the painting's been recovered, is that she was behind the theft at the Kenwood house as well. All of the, and I lay it out in the book, a circumstantial mm. case, but I think a convincing case that it was her. The similarities between the two thefts and the two messages and, and other things point to the fact that she was probably involved. In the book and in history, people point to a fortune teller named Nella Jones, who that the, poli the police had led them to the, to the guitar player in a uh, cemetery. My personal belief is that that's just a cover as to how they recovered it. I don't believe in psychics at all, first of all. But secondly, um, I think she's a convenient cover for them having gotten it because of something having to do with Rose. But we'll never know unless Rose decides to tell and she'll never tell. What about the notes? Is there any way to compare with the notes to find out? I've tried like crazy to get the note. <laughs> I've tried like no one would even, could even tell you where the note is now. I've tried everything to get those notes, but I'll keep trying. I right. Mean, just because the book's done, curiosity doesn't go away. Right. Well, maybe it. the book will, maybe it will appear somehow with the, with the interest in the book. I hope. Sometimes I, I mean, I have up. her handwriting. I have samples of Rose's handwriting. And if anybody would have written the note, it would have been her, not Eddie. But I believe it was her. Or and she's her. still alive, correct? Rose is alive and well. She's in a wheelchair. She's smoking all day long. Uh, she lives in a small home in Dublin. Of she doesn't like to talk to anybody. E eating ice cream with Jerry Adams. I mean, eating you know. ice cream. Yep. <laughs> Taking shots of whiskey. I have a picture of her signing the uh, guest book for condolences when Castro died at the embassy. Um, uh, her social media, she, she doesn't use it anymore. But when she did, the lady writing a letter with her maid is her profile photo the oh, premiere wow. she stole. Um, and I hope that if your listeners buy the book, and I certainly hope they do, I hope that they read really closely the story about how those the two premieres were stolen, have a history together. Oh. Um, and it's just a remarkable. That, that was one of my favorite parts of the book. And I won't, you've told us, like, been so generous with how much you've told us from the book, and I won't give it away. But that part, as you know, I studied art history, and I just, oh, I absolutely love love the part about Vermeer. So um, amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Absolutely. And I didn't even really expect it. I feel like I went on this whole ride with the heist and yeah. then it's like surprise. There's like a whole other part. And then all of a sudden you're in 17th century Delft, right. you know, Holland. It was brilliant. It was great. Um, Anthony, we could talk to you for hours, oh, I mean, but you have been incredibly generous with your time. We loved your book. We encourage our you. listeners to, well, not run out and buy it, but, you know, but try, I, to, I buy try, to, try to buy it. What's the deal with the book? Where, where? Barnes and Noble? I would dot ask com. that people go to barnesandnoble.com and okay. uh, buy the book there. Uh, it, it, they should be restocking at Amazon any day. Um, cause of great strife for me. I might hijack a helicopter and fly it to <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> It's okay, Drop. Anthony, because then we'll hijack a helicopter and break you out uh, wherever you're detained. Okay, <laughs> you. about that. I think you two could probably pull that off now that I've spoken to you for an hour. And we actually have on our website Anthony's book, and we have a link to Barnes & Noble, so our listeners can get the book right there. And it is, I know it's available because a few listeners have gotten the Kindle on Amazon, so that's yes, available. Yes, you can get it. Get I have Kindle. it on the Kindle, yeah. Kin you know, on so Kindle. So it is available so that, there, but... Yeah. Um, I can't thank you enough, Anthony. Maybe you'll um, 
come back again sometime. We have and talk to us again, maybe about your Rembrandt book. Um, we would love to have you again. I mean, it's just such a pleasure. And uh, oh, we forgot about the gardener, actually. I mean, I, we wanted you initially to come on and talk about the gardener. And I'm like, oh, that crime? <laughs> that old crime. Um, I'd be happy to. The Ivy League connection, I guess, would be when Mrs. Gardner opened her museum, she would use Harvard students as her guards. And wow. she had so much oh, sway in the, in the city and with Harvard that she, she could get them out of exams to come work wow. at the museum. Wow. And uh, also, the other part, the other connection to Harvard with Mrs. Gardner is that the will, our will says that if anything is ever changed in any way at the museum without court's permission, that uh, the entire collection is to be auctioned off and the proceeds given to Harvard. Wow. So, um, I had no idea. Oh, Harvard would love that. Yeah. yeah. Harvard's yeah, probably they like, because they're really struggling. They probably have plants yeah. over there trying to get things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um anyway total pleasure and total thank pleasure. you so much it's been a complete yeah. pleasure talking to you guys and i enjoy your podcast and uh it's good to talk to people who get crime uh and that it's not just murders so no. thank you for for yes. talking about rose yeah. good luck with the book and selling the book and we thank you guys so yeah. much and thank you for all the promotion of the book on your pages i really appreciate it Oh, well, we're going to keep doing it because we, we just, you. yeah, we love it. Okay. Thanks, right. Anthony. Thank Enjoy you so weekend. much. Wow, Sarah, this week, really, we we got more than we bargained for. I initially had contacted Anthony about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which is a hometown crime for us. And next thing you knew, we were off to Ireland where you lived as a child, Sarah. I did. Actually, our house, the Hermitage, was about 30 miles away from Rustboro House in County Wicklow. Amazing. And I was there in 1974 during this whole time. I was five years old, so it's not like I, you know, remember a whole lot, but it was big news big in Ireland. News. Yeah, yeah. Daily news, wasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just wanted to do a little shout out to my friends, the Heenies, and Seamus Heaney, who passed away a few years ago. It's a huge loss. And I wanted to leave you with one of his poems, which is called, Whatever You Say, Say Nothing. This is Seamus in his own words. Religions never mentioned here, of course. You know them by their eyes and hold your tongue. One side's as bad as the other, never worse. Of the wee six I sing, where to be saved, you only must save face. And whatever you say, you say nothing. Smoke signals are loudmouth compared with us. Maneuverings to find out name and school with subtle discrimination by addresses, with hardly an exception to the rule that Norman, Ken and Sydney signal prod, and Seamus call me Sean, where surefire pape. O oh, land of password, hand grip, wink and nod, of open minds as open as a trap, where tongues lie coiled as under flame lie wicks. Where half of us, as in a wooden horse, were cabined and confined like wily Greeks, besieged within the siege, whispering Morse. <laughs>